The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Today's scripture is coming from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Charday. So as has already been um, announced, we are looking at the vision of downtown church this morning. And I want this... um, picture to kind of um, stay in our minds. Uh, there, there are three things we're going to be looking at, and a vision is basically who we are, who we want to be as downtown church. Um, and, and this is a summary of just how we are a kingdom-driven, gospel-empowered, multi-ethnic, multi-class, disciple-making church. First, at its root, which is where we're going to start this morning, we are formed by faith. We believe something, and, and, what, and, and that belief draws us together as a family. So we are formed by faith, but restored in community, restored in relationship with one another. Not just casual relationship, but deep familial relationship. Uh, it's why the, the uh, announcement about the men's retreat is so important, getting to know each other, sharing life together. As we're formed in faith, restored in community, so that we might serve the city. So that we might have the power to serve the city, not to get God's love and approval, but because we have God's love and approval. And so that's where we're going to start this morning, formed by faith. And before we do that, um, I think I think we may have failed to mention one thing, one important announcement that's coming up this week, and that is this Thursday at the church office, the center uh, will be cranking back up again. This is a faith and work ministry led by Howard Graham, and it's been at our church office um, since the beginning of the ministry. And so uh, it's a time for you to come and just grab lunch and, and consider how, and this Thursday, um, we're going to be considering how we might lead like Jesus in our workplace and our families and just in life in general. So please uh, join us this Thursday at the church office. Um, and before we dive in, I, I do want to pray, and uh, Sister Lisa Conrad uh, shared with us this morning, uh, a couple of us, just that uh, she's got um, a diagnosis of uh, serious arthritis and is living in pain. And I'm going to pray for you, Lisa. Um, Pete, if, if a couple around her would just kind of put their hands on her shoulder, as I do, And as I ask God to open our hearts and minds to this passage, Lord God, we thank you that you are a God for the brokenhearted. You're a God for the sufferer. You're the the God of the one who is bowed down, who doesn't know how they're going to go on. And so I pray that you would hear Lisa's prayers and cries, that you would see her tears that she shed before me this morning, 
And that, Father, you would comfort her, that you would heal her by your spirit, that you would raise her up, O God, that you would strengthen her. Father, I pray that you would protect her mind and heart, that the evil one wants to attack and convince that she's alone and no one cares. Father, I pray that we as a church body would come around her and love her well. And that, Father, she would feel the encouragement in the midst of her suffering. But, O oh God, even as Paul said, I consider that our sufferings in this present world are not compare, comparable to the glory that will one day be revealed. So, Father, I pray that you would set Lisa's sight on that day of glory. And, Lord, I pray that, indeed, uh, you would encourage her and may she live even out of it in the midst of her pain. Lord, we give her to you and thank you for her. And Father, we pray for our own hearts and minds as we come to your text this morning and to your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for speaking to us. And thank you for these verses, O oh God. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his declaration and, the, and what the work you did in his life that he might come to the point that he would declare that he's not ashamed of the gospel. That he was excited about the gospel, willing even unto death. And so, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would show up by the power of your Spirit and you do a mighty work in us. Free us, O God, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. O God, may we experience that freedom. Even this morning, Lord, help us to think thoughts after you. Help us to see things we've not seen before. Not only our sin and our sin patterns, but in our unbelief, but, O God, show us Jesus that we might rejoice in him, that we might fall madly in love with him again this morning. That, Father, we'd be different when we walk out of this place and when we walked in. And we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Form by faith. Uh, friends, I can assure you this is um, more than just um, more than just instruction and direction for me this morning because for the first at least 10 years of my Christian life and really the first uh, many years of my ministry, I was not formed by the faith in the gospel of Jesus. I was not formed by this gospel that Paul is declaring in this passage. I was believing and really functionally resting on, I don't think I would have said that, I know I wouldn't have said this then because I would have been too embarrassed, but I was functionally trusting a system of doctrine in place of Jesus. You know how tricky that is? Doctrine that speaks of Jesus, but in my heart had nothing to do with Jesus. I was very proud and very dependent on a system of doctrine called the Reformed Faith. And I believe, and when I came alive, that doctrine came alive. Jesus came alive to me. But at that point, Jesus wasn't that much alive to me. My doctrine was alive to me. And because of that, I was very different. I hope very different than I am today. Not all the time, certainly. I can fall back into this. But I was basically prayerless. I experienced very little intimacy with God. I was not really meeting God in prayer. I was demanding of others and critical and judgmental. I was anxious over felt needs. I was constantly comparing myself to other people, especially other ministers. I lacked faith. I was full of fear. 
I didn't really share Jesus, but I was passionate to make uh, all those Armenians out there reform believers. I, would, I could argue predestination and election, and, and that was my passion. And that was my righteousness. I was narrow and closed-minded to any other expression of worship, especially. We have to worship like reformed people worship, whatever in the world that means. But I can tell you what it meant. Uh, I had the, the exact expression of what worship should look like. And I was certainly proud that I was not like those Baptists. I was not like those Methodists. Lord, God, thank you I'm not Catholic. That's literally how I thought. I was self-righteous. And Rachel felt it. <laughs> Because she had to make me, and she had to hold up this end of the, this self-image and this righteousness that I was leaning on. I had to protect it, and she was part of that. She had to make me look good, and so did my children. It's a living death. But through a lot of circumstances, primarily Rachel and um, her confrontation of me as a husband and a man. Uh, God freed me. And about 30 years ago, these verses came to life for me. I could say along with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, Jews and even Greeks, for in it, a righteousness is revealed from God. And it's a righteousness apart from law, and it's from faith to faith. Because the righteous will live by what? Faith. And as we live by faith in what Christ has completed, we are freed. Freed from having to be some image that we set up. Freed from having to live by the laws and the expectations that we set up. Righteous in God's sight, fully loved, fully accepted, fully embraced because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And friends, that's the good news. And that has to be the roots of who we are as believers. That we might be humbled by his grace so that we might boast not in self but in Jesus. Friends, this is the kind of church that we set out to be 14 and a half years ago. And this is the kind of church that we continue to fight for. Is to be a church and to be a people that are formed by the gospel of Jesus. Not in word, but in reality. And so the main idea of this sermon this morning is downtown church must be formed by the gospel of Jesus. So the question to all of us is this morning, are we? Are we right now, not were we a week ago or a year ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but right now, what are the laws that you're believing? What are the things you're holding up and you feel good about yourself when you accomplish it and you feel bad about yourself when you don't? And, and unbeknownst to you, you're measuring everybody else around you by the same standards. 
Let's dive into this. The first thing we need to see is that it really is all about righteousness. Paul says, for in it, in verse 117a, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, why is that good news? It's because righteousness is our biggest need. Every one of us, no matter our age, our gender, our race, whatever, how much money we have, how much money we don't have, every single one of us is in a battle for righteousness every second of every day. Let me give you uh, a couple of illustrations, actually three. I work with a lot of church planners and pastors, and one that I was working with recently um, told me that a, a couple of weeks ago that he got to such a dark place in his own heart and mind that he really didn't know if he was going to be able to go on in ministry. You say, what happened? Here's what happened. On one Sunday, uh, an older woman critiqued his sermon, gave a pretty strong critique of his sermon. And on that same Sunday, another person in the church, actually church plant, made a criticism of the church and he began to stew on that. He began to, to, to think on that to the point that he began to believe, and it, this became reality to him, that everybody hated his preaching and that the church plant was going to fail. What was he believing? <laughs> what, what were his expectations? He was not believing in a righteousness from God apart from law that comes to me through faith, he was believing that, that my righteousness comes through my preaching and through the way I do church. And if somebody challenges that, then I'm nothing. And friends, how about you? How do you take criticism at work? How do you take criticism in your marriage? How do you take criticism from anybody? He was believing a false gospel and tasting the death of it. I spoke to a mother, not even in this state, who has a daughter with neurological issues. And because of her daughter's neurological issues, her behavior is just erratic. I mean, she can't control herself. So she'll be sitting in church and might, you know, a, a drop of water might come on her or something and she just explodes, might take her shirt off, might, there's no telling what she might do. And I talked to this mother, I said, well, how does that impact you? I can't imagine, you know, the, 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 you know just what this might be like. And she said, oh, it's, it's, it's terrible. She said, I'm anxious every second, especially when I'm at church. And we began to unpack that. And the reason she was is why? Because she feels like a horrible mother. She feels like a failure if her daughter doesn't act like other children. She has put this law on herself that if she acts up, it's a reflection of me as a mother and I'm a failure. Can you relate to that? If you're a parent and you can't relate to that, you're either blind or lying. All of us look to our children to some extent or another, and probably much of the time, to make us feel good about us. And a lot of our anger and a lot of our frustration, and quite frankly, a lot of our discipline is more about our shame than their behavior. It's a false gospel. This past uh, December, early in December, marked the 
one-year anniversary of my mother's passing. And this last Thursday, this week, uh, marked the one-year anniversary of my stepfather's passing. And, um, and as I think about that, it's funny, I, I go over this sermon, I don't know how many times, and didn't get emotional at all. I don't know why this happens when I get in front of you, but whatever, it is what it is. Now, I know I'm not going to apologize, but sometimes it just surprises me uh, where that's coming from. But as I was, you know, as I think about my parents, uh, my parents had a rough ending. Uh, they couldn't afford, like, the, you know, really good care, like, you know, at a, at a uh, you know, really nice nursing home or anything like that. And it, it was pretty brutal, pretty brutal. But in fact, both of them, because of their dementia and because it didn't make them calm and nice, it made them almost violent, self-harm, and, and it, was, it, was, it was horrible. And I had to um, admit both of them into a um, geriatric psych unit and because of that, you know, it's, it's completely irrational, but it is completely real. That when I think about it, I have this guilt. And, and I, you know, I've been processing that. Where is that coming from? Because it's irrational. I did everything I knew to do. And everything I could do. And yet, there's this law placed in me somewhere, somehow, that a good son would have done better. And man, I'm telling you, I can sit there and I can believe it more than I believe in the person and work of Jesus. And I can go from feeling incredible on a, you know, on a Sunday morning in the midst of worship or, you know, in a, in a devotional to feeling so small and insignificant and worthless. And friends, we all strive at the deepest level for righteousness. We want to feel good before God and others based on what we do or don't do. It is ingrained in us. We need a righteousness. You see, one whose functional trust is in Jesus and not self and not others is a different person than one whose trust is in self. And here's the reality. It, it's, it's something that we have to recapture I've heard the illustration. I want to hear one better. One of these days I'll think of it. But, it, you know, the gospel is very, it's like fish. You put fish out, it doesn't stay fresh long. You got to keep catching fish. And that's the gospel. You've got to keep catching it. Not last week, not yesterday, but now. And you're going to need it again at about 2 o'clock this afternoon. You're going to need it again at about 3.30. You're going to need it again at about 8 o'clock tonight. Because these lies constantly, our hearts are constantly working for righteousness. It is what we were made for. We were made for perfect communion with God. We weren't made to feel low and pathetic. We were made to feel loved and accepted and delighted in. We were made to be naked before God, running to Him, seeking fellowship and intimacy. That's what we were made for, and yet our sin wants to shame us, and the devil wants to shame us, and our flesh tells us, oh, you can do better, and it's true. <laughs> you know, we should do better, 
But we haven't. But there's one that has. You know, I'm fascinated by the messages on our social media. I think of the holistic psychologist. A lot of her stuff is really good. And this is actually really good, but typically she has no basis. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, that's okay. Um, I'm going to read something that she wrote, but uh, she's got some really good things to say, but she has absolutely no basis to say them. It's common grace. That's a whole other thing. But here was one post. How to break out of perfectionism. Here's her answer. Shift thinking Uh, Shift your thinking to know that no matter how hard you work, you will never achieve 100% because you're a flawed human. That's right. That's good. But where does she get that? Where's the basis of that? She has no basis. She's not a Christian. She has no authority to say that. And so basically, be kinder to yourself. Yes, we should be kinder to ourselves. But what if there were a basis for it? What if there was actual truth from God for it? That's what we want to look at. Because that's what the gospel is. Paul says in, in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set, set us free. Freedom from what? Freedom from living under the law and constantly judging yourself either as pathetic or better than everybody else. I mean, I don't know which is worse, failure or success. You're successful and then you feel better than everybody else. And you got to maintain that. So you got to constantly be critical and you got to constantly be looking down your nose. You got you to be judging everybody around you because they're not as successful as you are. They're not as good as you are. But the failure agrees with everybody around them <laughs> that they're worthless. So how do we get out of it? Number two, the gospel secures a certain and immediate righteousness. The Greek word for gospel means to tell the good news. And it's telling the good or joy-filled news of a victory. Um, News was disseminated in the first, second century by heralds. And that's the idea of gospel. It's a herald running from town to town. um, And and they've got good news of of great joy that will be for all the people. the, The angel coming. It's not something small. It's I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. That's the kind of news that a herald would give, you know. Not, hey, it's going to be sunny in 89. Low humidity. No. It was real substantive news. But the news of the gospel starts with desperation. Um, it, it starts with, with, um, with really an insult. And the insult is this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, let's start off with that. <laughs> How are you doing today? Well, I feel great. Well, let me tell you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Oh, well, thanks, Richard. One of my favorite Bible teachers of old, his name is Jack Miller. He, his whole, he, he talks about the gospel like this. He says, cheer up, you're worse than you think. He's <laughs> like, what? So, Richard, you, it's worse you think it's bad, you know, feeling, you know, like an imperfect son. Oh, it's a whole lot worse than that. He's right. 
He's right. You see, our sin is not just isolated actions, but our sin is rooted in relational rebellion against God. If you look at the garden, this was a relational interaction between God and man. And, um, and Adam and Eve disobeyed because they thought that it was up to them to choose what is wise and good and true in life. The devil won the victory in the garden by getting them to, to think that when God tells us something to do, when he gives us his law, that he's out to deprive us, not free us. That he's out to keep us from the real goodness of life. And therefore, freedom is found in us determining what's true for us. Freedom is us de deciding what is good, not God. So the testing in the garden was all about trust. Can men and women trust God to tell them where life can be found? Nah. We can. And so the, this flip, it's not man worshiping God, it's man using God to make our lives better. That's who we are, and that's basically what we constantly do. We live seeking to feel right before God, and yet we won't listen to God. It's a recipe for failure. So our condition is one of desperation. Paul says, as for you, he tells the believers in Ephesus, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not COVID sick. You were dead. That's all you did. Why? Because you did nothing. Even the good you did was for you. Even the good you did was trying to show God how good you are and others and prove to yourself how good you are. Even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags, says Isaiah. But it ends with the sufficiency of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It, it, the gospel message starts with, I'm a sinner. So for me to get out of those thoughts of, I'm a, you know, I should have been a better son. Okay. Could I have been a better son? Absolutely. Absolutely. I could have been a better son. I did not do it perfectly. Okay. So I've got to admit that. But my, my, my freedom doesn't come in, oh, I need to be kinder to myself. I need to be, you know, I, I do need to be kinder to myself, but I got to have a basis upon which to be kinder. So let's, here it is the sufficiency of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, Paul tells us here that the news he declares is, what, is that we can be declared righteous before God. He goes on in, in chapter 3 of um, Romans to say this, but now, he takes the first at about verse 18 of Romans 1 on to about uh, 321. He is, he is proving are explaining the doctrine of depravity. He is telling us that God kicked us out of the garden, gave us over to our own passions and pleasures, and, and now we just do whatever we want to do, and we are in rebellion against God, and you know, there's no one righteous, no, not one, all of that. But then he gets down to verse 21 of chapter 3, and he says, but now. And boy, you're ready for the good news by 321. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, Jew and Greek. 
There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Righteousness, apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I can stand righteous before the God of heaven and earth because Jesus lived under the law in our place. When the time was fully ripe, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law. In other words, I don't have to live in in this prison of I should have been a better son. And friends, that's just one thing I judge myself by. I could give you a hundred. That's just one thing. I, I don't have to be a perfect son. Why? Because Jesus was a perfect son for me. And the father says, Richard, I accept you as a perfect son. But here's the thing, even though you're not, this is what saved Martin Luther. Simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously, I am both sinful and declared utterly righteous before God. And that brings humility because I know I wasn't a perfect son, but my father in heaven, Zephaniah says, is dancing over me with joy, delighting in me, because Jesus was a perfect son for me. And Jesus took all of the guilt of all of my lack of being a perfect son, and he atoned for it on the cross. So I'm forgiven, and I'm declared righteous, and now I am a son of God, adopted and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, that is freedom. It's not to try to prove to your spouse, no, I'm not that bad. I think I'm probably better than you think I am. That's what I do. I still do it. That is, there's no life in that. Maybe you can win the argument. Maybe you're good at that, but you don't win it in your heart. And if you do, then you're just growing in your self-righteousness and your arrogance. Paul says, lastly, that this, is, this gospel is power. It's the power, the dunamis, the power of God. That sounds like dynamite because that's what it is. The power of God, the Greek word is dunamis for power. It's the dunamis of God, the dynamite of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In, in verses 5 through 6 of chapter 1, he says, We have received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The obedience of faith. This gospel is power to make us better. This is a better motivation. It has power. The law has no power but to shame. But the gospel has power to change us. The gospel has power to motivate obedience out of love and gratitude and appreciation. And oh, it's a world of difference. How does the gospel produce obedience when believed? Let's go back to our church planter. What if, what, let's see, when, when my church planter, when, when he's believing the gospel, he's like, I know I'm not the best preacher, but I know one who is. And I know he was for me so that I could stand before God and God could say, I accept you as a perfect preacher, even though you know you're not. And I love you as if you have preached the best sermons in the world, perfectly. 
And you're also not the best leader. But guess what? Jesus is for you. And so I accept his righteousness and I count it to your, I impute it to your account. I put it, transfer it to your account so I I see you as a perfect leader. I treat you as a perfect leader. So that woman can come and and criticize your sermon and these others can come and criticize or, or just make remarks about something in the church and you don't have to die. And in fact, you can be humble and listen. Why? Because your righteousness, your identity is rooted in what I say about you, not what they say about you. How are you in criticism? Dear friends, you can take criticism and it not kill you. Because there's a righteousness of another. His name is Jesus. This mother who feels worthless. And we talked about this. I mean, she will, this, this, this child will never outgrow this. It's a, it's a neurological issue that, that she will not outgrow. This is this mother's rest of her life. She, Jesus was the perfect father and mother in her place. She doesn't have to prove that she is, that she has worth as a mother. She has inestimable worth because of Jesus. He has fulfilled every expectation for her. And the father is dancing over her. So now she can sit in worship and she can patiently And humbly serve her daughter, no matter her daughter's behavior, no matter what she does. Ah, she took her shirt off and ran down the aisle. And I encouraged this mother, I said, have you ever thought that maybe of of going to some women in the church and and asking and, and sharing how you feel? Well, I just feel like it's it's on me. No, it doesn't have to be on you. Why? Because God didn't look at you to be self-sufficient. God has freed you to be vulnerable in your community and say, I need your help, brothers and sisters. I can't do this alone. That's how the gospel frees us. It frees us to be vulnerable. It frees us not to have it together because Jesus has it together for us. Do you see now how we have to believe the gospel if we're going to be the family of God that God's called us to be? Because it demands vulnerability and honesty with ourselves, believing the truth of the gospel and going forward. I've already told you how it looks for me to believe the gospel as a son. I can believe the gospel because it's true. I don't have to be a perfect son. Jesus is the perfect son for me. Progressives look to issues for righteousness. Conservatives look to doctrine for righteousness, but Christians look to Jesus. We count ourselves as sinners and unrighteous, but counted righteous in Christ. And because of that, we have incredible gratitude to the one who redeemed us, to Jesus Christ himself, to live for his glory, to seek his glory, to exalt him, because who else in all of creation would come and take on flesh for me and live under the law perfectly for me and then go to the cross and become my sin and then present his record of righteousness for me as the Father presents my record of sin to him 
and him take it gladly for the joy set before him. To redeem a man like me and to redeem men and women like you. And friends, it's interesting to me that the context of this is multi-ethnic church. The whole point, I just saw this about 10, 15 years ago. You know, I've studied Romans because I was reformed. I mean, Romans was the book. I never realized the point of the power and the truth of the doctrine of Romans is so that men and women will believe it, men and women that hate each other and judge each other, Jews and Greeks. It was to bring Jews and Greeks who were enemies of one another into the same body and becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when you believe that you have nothing to present to God, but you believe Jesus has presented everything to God, and, and, and you are accepted solely and completely on the grounds of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you have nothing over on anybody else. And enemies can become brothers and sisters because you're the same. It levels the ground. It levels the playing field. And instead of self uh, criticalness and self-hatred and, and judgmental attitude toward others, you, you produce love. Because the production of this, the fruit of this is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Dear friends, do you believe the gospel this morning? Do you believe this? I challenge you, where are you not believing it? Because everybody in here, you're not believing it somewhere. How are you not believing it? And I challenge you every moment of every day this week, dissect that. How am I not believing the gospel? I'm, I, this, I'm feeling separated. I'm feeling negative. I'm feeling critical. What do I need to believe right now? What am I believing that's false, and what do I need to believe? How is Jesus the sufficiency of everything I need right now to free me not to act or to believe about myself and others how I believe and feel right now? I'm telling you right now, if we did this as a church body, we would have revival. If every one of us in here took this seriously and applied it, we would have revival. The things that you think are important right now, the things that you're holding high, would probably become very low. And the work of Jesus and what he values would become central to your life and to the life of downtown church. Dear friends, it's my prayer that this is what we would believe. If you're not a believer today, dear friends, this is the gospel. I don't know what you thought it was, but this is the gospel. Believe it. Christian, this is the gospel. Paul is writing to Christians, not to non-Christians. You need it as much as your neighbor. May you believe it. Lord Jesus, I pray that indeed we would believe the reality of the message of the gospel. That it would not just be words, but it would become music. Help us, O oh God. Help us, O oh God, to believe the gospel. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, I thank him that he did not leave me in that place. <laughs> thank you for your freedom. Thank you for the hope of the gospel for all of us. Father, call us out of hiding into your wonderful light. Call us out of private suffering.
into the fellowship of the Spirit, the fellowship of the saints. Oh, God, I pray that you would make us the community that you called us to be, rooted in your gospel. May it come out of our pores, oh, God. May we repent and be repenting daily, hour by hour, and yet believing the mighty and glorious hope of a resurrected king for us. Lord, make it real. Dear friends, receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Go in peace, friends.